clubhouse. Is it me, or do they look like husband and wife? Kind of. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Without a Paddle, the Shit's Creek Podcast. Tonight we're talking about episode 14 of season 6, the series finale, Happy Ending. We'll also be talking about the retrospective show a little bit, probably a little bit more than a little bit, which was called Best Wishes, Warmest Regards. Oh, Caroline, it has come to this. Finally, we are sitting down to do this. Yes, it has been quite a journey for us, I have to say, but... You know, we've had a lot of roller coaster bullshit going on in the real world, people. We're just trying to get our our shit together for our Shit's Creek podcast. Yeah, I mean, if we all could uh, hop in a time machine, I feel like we would have liked the Shit's Creek final season to start about a month later than it actually <laughs> did. And, yeah. and that way we could have had it all through the peak corona time. Yeah, if only they knew about the Rona. If they only knew about the Rona, I feel like they would have, you know, pushed the air date, the start date back a little bit so we would have it as comfort food. But I guess we can go back and relive the first five seasons right now on Netflix. We absolutely can. And that's an important silver lining to point out, Mike. Well, I've also heard rumors. I don't know if this has been confirmed, but I've heard rumors that Netflix has already agreed to release season six sooner than it had planned on. I think that's super smart of them because, you know, people are just chomping at the bit you got to give the people what they want can you imagine how much they're kicking themselves for really for losing friends but netflix just released a stat that it's added like 16 million subscribers during mm. like this coronavirus time right imagine had they not lost friends how many people they would have added yeah i don't know i just feel like people are joining up on netflix because you know there ain't nothing better to be doing so maybe they didn't even need that prime content Netflix, to their credit, I mean, continues to drop so much new content every goddamn It's not even on Fridays anymore. They're dropping stuff on Mondays, on Tuesdays, on Wednesdays. Wednesdays, Thursdays. All the days of the week, except for Saturdays and Sundays. They take (laughs) those days off. taxi, right? What does he say? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, See, I always think of uh, The Godfather when Michael goes to Italy after he kills the guy and he has to run to Italy. And he's teaching the woman he falls in love with there. And she's like, I know that there's the week of Michael. It's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> and then she gets blown up and it's very sad. But, wah, wah, wah. Oh, boy. So Shit's Creek, people. Loving it. Loving it. I really am excited that you and I got an opportunity to go all the way up to Sharon Springs, literally 30 seconds before Big Rona chomped our asses and sent us all home to think about what we've done. We got an opportunity to go visit the Rose Apothecary pop-up. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Uh, literally, the second to last weekend that it was open. Who knew? Who knew? Who like, knew? Like, we are living our best lives just then. We didn't even realize how lucky we were to be able to go talk to people, 
socialize. We were within six feet of people. We were within six feet of a lot of people. You know, we got to meet. Uh, we didn't get to meet the Beekman boys then. We interviewed them afterwards, but we met their awesome staff. Yeah, and we were right up in their grills. We got to meet Kendall and Deb, the fantastic ladies of McGillicuddy's Naturals. The natural ladies. The, the natural ladies. Uh, making their their best rosebud scents and soaps yeah. and candles. And ever since then, we've been able to run this fantastical contest that we know you listeners are just so excited to be a part of. We've been dropping you guys secret words all along the way, and we know you're waiting for your last secret word, which we cannot wait to give you in this podcast. Are we giving it up right now, or are we going to make them wait a little bit? <laughs> Mike, you've always been the controller of this contest, okay? Since day well, one. Well, <laughs> I feel like I need to ask, Caroline, would you like to tell them the secret word or phrase? I think I would, Mike. I think I would. Oh, I'm very excited. Yo quiero secret word. <laughs> Ooh. Are you going to let it drop now, or are you going to make them wait? Oh, gosh. I feel like I should just go for it, Mike. It feels like we've made them wait long enough, doesn't it? I mean, we have made them wait. A long time We've to been get this a episode out. A little bit extra about this whole thing, haven't we? Uh, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit. So, why don't you drop the phrase and then I'll quickly rehash the rules after that? Okay, people. The last phrase for the Shit's Creek contest is happy ending. Of course it's happy ending. It has to be. It, it has the, to be. The show was a happy ending. David got a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know what other phrase we would have used if not for happy ending. I know. And after a big Rona, we're all going to have a happy ending. So if you need to know about the rules, you, one, you should head to podclubhouse.com. There is a post up there under the Shits Creek tab. It's called Our Shitty Little Contest. It's got all the rules and reps and, and everything you need. You could also go find it at, at Pod Clubhouse on Twitter and on Instagram. We have posts to the rules there. It's at Pop Culture View. Also has a tag of the post there. Um, everywhere basically we are, you can find the rules. Here it is in a nutshell. You need to listen to our podcast episodes for episode 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. That is seven podcast episodes you need to go listen to and somewhere hidden in every one of those episodes including tonight there is a word or phrase and i said word but i think every week it basically turned out to be a phrase i think so too we never could keep it together to just one word get i like to get (laughs) as many words as possible always so you go listen and you have seven words or phrases you need to collect them all you need to send them to us either via dm people have reached out to us on instagram people have reached out to us on twitter with their submissions I know those people are waiting for this final seventh episode to drop. Send us all seven words or phrases from episodes eight through 14, and you will be in the chance the first five people who get the entries correct will win one of our five fabulous gift prizes that we bought and assembled from Rose Apothecary material and Rosebud material from Beekman 1802 and from McGillicuddy's Naturals up in Sharon Springs, New York. Super fun, you guys. This stuff is so cool. Such an Mm -hmm. awesome collector's item. You guys absolutely want to have this stuff, especially during Rona time. Like, this is the time to smell good, feel soft, light that candle, chill out. You know, you just got to you gotta have this de-stressing comfort stuff, and we can provide it. Yeah, I mean, there, there are, uh, some of the price packages have body creams. Natural soaps. Uh, the, go- the goat soap. I think a bunch of them have balm in them. Yeah, for your sad, dry Rona lips. There is a rosebud candle. There's a lot of good stuff is the point of the story. Y'all want to get in on this. So remember, the last phrase was 
happy ending. Let's get into this happy ending, Mike. Let's let, get let into us, this. Let us talk. Episode 614, Happy Ending, was written by a guy named Daniel Levy. Mm. Uh, he sounds promising. I think he may go far. Right. And it, it was directed by Andrew Cividino and Daniel Levy. That guy was doing double duty on this episode, writing it and co-directing it. Working hard, man. Working nine to five. <laughs> So Working Dolly Parton. I feel like he would love Dolly. I don't know if that was ever on the show, but I really feel like he would love Dolly. Man, I, I feel like we should watch 9 to 5. That is an excellent movie. Mm, you want to? We should. Maybe oh everybody should follow along. We'll invite everyone who's listening to come watch 9 to 5 with us. We'll do some sort of tweet along with it. Um, mm-hmm. And and then also at one point, I want you to like do like a little a little dance for a little 9 to 5 dance. Uh, I am always dancing. It's just whether or not the camera is on me when I'm doing it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was the first time I ever saw a ball gag and uh, transformative life experience when I was a young man. So there you go. Whoa, that's that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, Dabney, Dabney Coleman in a ball gag. That leaves a fucking mark on your psyche when you're a child. I kind of feel like the first ball gag I ever saw was probably Pulp Fiction. I probably had heard about them before, but I think the gimp was probably the first time I ever saw one. I, I think that was the first ball gag I ever saw that was actually being used for yeah. the way that most people use them. I, am I wrong? I know. I'm pretty sure they put like a ball yeah. gag in no, his mouth. No, I think mouth. they do. I think they do. And, yeah, and, and then they truss them up, right? Like, and then they, they hoist them into the thing. <laughs> yeah. They get real, real fetishist don't with Debbie Don't tell the Coleman. whole story. You're going to ruin it. At least this year, we get, you're only getting from like nine to noon. Now it can't be like spoiling the rest. Uh, I love a good nooner. <laughs> anyway, all right. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about. We're not talking about nine to five. God damn it, Caroline! I know Stop we're never going to get through this five. No, we have Is to. It? Tonight's the night. Damn it! We're gonna keep it light. We're gonna keep it silly, and we're gonna keep it all shitty. So let's go. Get so shitty. Obviously, in a town where it never fucking rains, of course it rains on the day of Patrick and David's wedding. <laughs> right? I mean, is yeah. it? It had to be. It yes. had to be. Yes, yes, yes. What was your favorite part of that entire thing? Was it David letting go of like a thousand fucks? Was it the fact that Fabian, the haikuist, was not going to be able to make it? Or was it the fact that a wood fire pizza oven was more important than a tent? Oh, man. I mean, I really like the Sophie's choice of a tent or a wood fired pizza oven. <laughs> and I think I agree with David. I probably also would have wanted to go with a wood uh, with a wood fired oven because that is how pizza is best. Mm. But Fabian, the haikuist, coming in as the officiant, has to be the most David thing that David has done in a very long time. I agree. The entire "what adult only rides a penny farthing" cracked my ass up. I was laughing so hard, specifically because during this big Rona time, I like peep out the window every once in a while, a la like Mrs. Kravitz. And no shit, Mike, we have a dude who has like a Batmobile, but it's the convertible Batmobile. And he just drolls around the neighborhood, driving it around. Behind him is frequently a little duckling line of children in various costumes and whatnot who are either scooting or they might be hoverboarding or whatever. And then the other day someone was out there doing like a a little plane and an RC car. And I was like, I feel like I live in a vaudevillian times. And like, if a dude does not come by in a penny farthing, I feel gypped. Okay, so Fabian came at right the right time in my life. You're basically living in a version, uh, like a low budget version of the Disney World Main Street Parade. I will take a picture of the Batmobile when he goes by next, and you will be like, I cannot even believe that exists. Every once in a while, people also in my neighborhood has, have golf carts. So sometimes there's like a six-year-old trolling by in like a golf cart. <laughs> it's really funny. But Fabian, the haikuist, 
yeah, he also takes the cake for me. I think that the idea that Fabian lives in Elmdale also cracks me up. Turns out that Elmdale has a lot more shit going on there. Colts, Fabians, we don't know. You think, I wonder if Fabian maybe was the cult leader at the top of the gym cult. Oh God, maybe. don't you know it? I mean, that'd that'd talk about inter interconnected lore. <laughs> That would make so much sense. I, I want to pat us on the back, Caroline, because I don't know if you remember, but if you set your memory way, 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 way back to the beginning of the season, we predicted that some rain would uh, would come and wash out the wedding, that there was no way David would actually end up having a outdoor wedding behind the motel. We, I think we predicted that the ground would open up and swallow it, you know, kind of mud hole style. <laughs> like a sinkhole. Or sinkhole, sinkhole style. Like a sinkhole, right? Yeah. But so we missed the mark a little bit on that, but not by much. I mean, the rain was hard enough to bring in Bob's roof. We're talking <laughs> hey, some major rain. Did you ever see John Mulaney stand up when he says he, he always thought that quicksand was going to play a lot more into his life as an adult <laughs> than quicksand does? <laughs> Because of how much you hear about it as, as a, a child. Kid. In like it's a constant yeah. concern as a kid, like on cartoons, like people are constantly getting lost in quicksand, like on Scooby-Doo and shit. But like nobody I know ever has even encountered quicksand. What a letdown. You know what the interesting is about quicksand? Where you're where you're more likely to run into quicksand, I think in reality, mm -hmm. is probably very unlikely to have a very long green vine nearby <laughs> to toss to you to save you, which I feel like was always the way people got out of quicksand traps you know, watching TV as a child, it was always, yeah, um, a long, it always green, came down to very strong vine. Yeah. Not only that could hold your weight and climb you up, but would also sink at a precipitous speed <laughs> through the quicksand to reach you. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty fucking amazing, really. Not only that, but sometimes if you had like an arch enemy, then sometimes he would have attached like an anvil to the other end. And so you'd be pulling it and it would be getting mm. you out. And then all of a sudden anvil to the old noggin. One of those where this is kind of like a visual gag that doesn't really work right on a podcast, especially in Corona times when you can't even I see can me. I can do descriptive video. Go ahead. But it's, uh, you know, it's like when you when you get one of those kind of things so where you're just like. Mike is talking on a microphone right now and he's talking about having a vine. And then like you run out of vine and like you're in midair right and then the you look down and you're fine until you look down. Into the quicksand and the and then you drop to your death. Down. A very roadrunner kind of death. Absolutely. Very Acme sponsored death i like this asmr uh it's called descriptive video I like it's that. what they put on blind videos in case y'all don't know it's called descriptive video so they'll be like sometimes if i can't find a good close captioning on a program i will try and use it? descriptive video yeah yeah well you know I, I i'm a details guy i need to know how things are being spelled because usually they're using a shooting script you know a lot of times for closed captioning so it sure. is an invaluable tool when you are a recapper god look at how much we're drawing this out we're the worst, you guys. What? We're we're like through like minute three of this episode and it's only taken <laughs> us 15 minutes. We're doing a fucking amazing job. Can we talk about the fact that it was not a surprise at all that Moira officiated Pat Sajak's wedding? Can I buy a vow? That was so funny. I it was so funny. Loved it. And I love the idea that Pat Sajak would get married in a live studio audience. And then the audience was like <laughs> eating up Moira so much. You know, I mm, I don't think we give credit enough to the myriad of jobs Moira has had and what a hard worker that lady has been. She is just, she's just working. She's working nine to five, Mike. I think if you asked her, Moira would probably say that she was a runner up 
to one of the people in, you know, either to like Lily Tomlin <laughs> right. or or to Dolly Parton for nine to five. I make your bet if you asked her in character, <laughs> she would say that she was like She's, she was supposed to be in that movie. Yeah. But she had to she had to shoot something. She, she turned the role and, down. And Joyce DeWitt. <laughs> yes. In the Dolly and Lily yes, Tomlin role. Yes. For sure. Absolutely. But so we quickly move on to there. And yes. stress level is high for David. And Absolutely. we get to the massage. Probably the most controversial controversial that is a hard word to say controversial Controversial part of the episode i I think for what i saw anyway a lot of the fans that did not like this episode pointed to this plot for that reason and and i think it's pretty unwarranted i think this was a solid gag um, with a great payoff later on but i also think it was very within the scope of david and patrick's relationship i think it was too honestly they did their good hard work in terms of laying the actual path for this this couple that first of all, that they've been really open, curious, you know, sexual people the entire time. We, If you guys remember, we went back to where David was encouraging Patrick to go get the guy's phone number in the store. They were going to go to Jake's whiskey party. You know, there's a lot of things that David and Patrick have experienced. So there's really no good reason to be up in arms. I feel like the main reason people might have been is just the concept of is having any sort of sex with any, any sort. And I'm even going to say kissing, like any kind of physical anything with another person, specifically on your wedding day, is that walking the line of infidelity? And is that just uncouth? What do you think? Yeah, it is, I think. Uh, (laughs) I would certainly say it is. But at at the same time... (sighs) They did what the show always does. You know that, Mike? They do what they always does, which, which is... Write it in such a way that after you hear it, you say, yeah, but that just that just makes sense. And it's OK. Like that, like that. No, it works for the characters. Like nothing about that stands out as crazy. Right. I think I think if you, I think this is if it was like Alexis and Ted or Bob and Gwen or any other like couple on the show, I think this would have been an issue. But I think this was very much kind of like like you said, it was very much in the kind of the established dynamic of Patrick and David. That this wouldn't be out of bounds. And also what I think it's really important to to remember here is David didn't seek it out. Right. It wasn't like he was getting a massage and was like, hey, while you're down there, you know, rub me off. Good call. You know, Good call. He thought he thought his future husband, in a move that shocked and impressed him, was just taking extra care of his needs on what he knew was a stressful day. And I think Patrick also realized when he put together how he left the money and the note <laughs> and David being David. How, from his point of view, it also seemed like that. I, you know, and I think that's the important part. I, I think that most people were just being a little bit uptight about it. And, you know, we've talked very openly about the show and sex and, and how much that's come into play. And, you know, I just don't think it's that big of a deal, honestly. There's, if, right. if you're going to be able to show massage strains and, or even, gosh, even earlier, I, one of my favorite moments is when David goes up to Stevie and was like, what are you doing tonight? And she says, she's going to a bar. And he goes, the lady is going to go try to go get laid. Like that whole part, like that cracks me up. But like, that's real. That's what real people do, you know? So I just think this is like, you know, it's okay. I, I think it's that. But I also think if this had been in any other episode... No one really would have batted an eye about it. I mean, we did mm. have the six, the whiskey, the whiskey episode and the massage train. And that was very open. I mean, yes. like Patrick, Patrick wore his little boy shirt, you know, <laughs> to make himself look all puffed up. I think it was because it was a series finale. People had a problem with it because people are very precious about series finales and beloved shows. True that. And the idea that every, every single joke and beat and line of dialogue has to be 
super heightened and super important. And this was just solid Shit's Creek funny. Yes. I agree with you wholeheartedly. That is what I think at the end of the day you could really chalk it up to is people just feeling like I, I wanted a little more answers or a little more whatever. Like for me, say I was going to be salty about it. Maybe I would say, why couldn't they have had a conversation about Patrick's fucking background and where he grew up and where his parents are and all that stuff? If I wanted to be salty, I could say, why couldn't I have gotten a scene about that instead of a happy ending scene? But I'm not because I enjoyed the jokes of it all. <laughs> I had two in my notes. I had two were you disappointed buys. Mm. Uh, one we'll get to in a second because this was the other big criticism uh, that I heard about the show. Okay. Uh, which I don't, I also doesn't think hold water. But the the one that I specifically wrote, were you disappointed was specifically for you mm. was, were you disappointed that in the end we did not, we even though we saw Patrick's parents, we never got the backstory that you so, so much craved. Mike, we didn't even get a word out of them. I don't think they even had a line. I don't know. I wasn't disappointed because Maybe just because I had I, I was just excited about so many of the other things that I really felt like they did everything they could do to give me everything I could want. And, you know, maybe sometimes it's tough medicine to take, Caroline. But, you know, the story wasn't about Patrick and his parents. The story is about the roses. And so maybe people would have been uber pissed had they spent any time about the brewers. Don't you think people would be screeching? Why didn't I get more Alexis? Why didn't I get more Johnny? Like, you know, why are we over here with the brewers learning about their dumb problems, you know? Right. I mean, Moira, for God's sake, couldn't even remember his name, you know, in the oh vows we're going to spend time giving. But also, I want to say that you have really fleshed out their story in the erotic fan fiction you write. Oh, shit. Sorry. You was not supposed to say that. Sorry. <laughs> the erotic fan fiction that we know people write about this show. Sure, uh, you have sure. really, really fleshed out the Brewer's backstory. I really have. Um, that entire, I mean, I referenced the, the gimp earlier in this in this story here because, you know, it's just been on my mind. It's, you know, sometimes when you're writing, it just, you know, filters over. So sorry about that. As Willie said, gimps are always on my mind. Oh, my God. I was like, Willie who? <laughs> Uh, I got Nelson. you. I got you there. And when you when you did the the croon, gotcha. Mm -hmm. What was funnier to you that Ray was the videographer or that Ronnie knew the florist? Definitely that Ronnie knew the florist. That part was so wacky, and I love that she was like, "I'm doing this for David, not for you." <laughs> like, oh my god! I, yeah. So good for, I mean, character consistency. Okay, people, you're, you're mad about the, the, the happy ending joke. Cool. Fine. That's your prerogative. This is solid. The length of a seasons long feud Ronnie has had with Patrick <laughs> for no real reason, right? I, I, I was trying to think back what the source of the animosity was. I don't even want to go there because I feel like. I'm going to say I know what it is, and then I'm going to just say to everybody who says that we don't watch the show detailed enough, then I'm just going to say we know what it was. We remember. It predates us podcasting the show. Absolutely. So, but we definitely know. I mean, it's in my diary, but it's not, shh, let's not waste time. I did love Ray as a videographer because he's so goofy. I mean, I wanted him as the officiant. I think I said that in the last episode. If anyone has to do it, I wish it was Ray. Though Moira ends up being a great choice. Oh my um, gosh, but yes. Rave, Rave with a video camera in his hand is gold. Comedy Perfection. gold. Perfection. Yeah, I love it. I love it. How did you feel about the town hall becoming the new wedding spot? Too obvious? Would you have really liked a scene in, in Bob's garage with the leaky roof? What was mm. your feeling about the town hall switch? You know, it's so funny because I feel like I've thought about this and even we've talked about it a little bit. And I had about a hundred different things and something completely new just popped into my brain just now. So... For the longest time, I thought, oh, wouldn't it have been very full circle given 
the anniversary episode and given Moyer's birthday episode for them to do it in the barn. But without Mutt, that would be weird. But here's like a second thing that like popped into my brain that's like very, very clear. The actual building that is the Rose Apothecary is beautiful and has like those beautiful glass windows and they fucking own the space. <laughs> like they yeah. easily could have had people go and clear it out. And I'm sure it's a bigger space than the actual town hall. So that is probably my only like, they could have just got married there, couldn't they? So in that case, yeah, town hall was kind of funny and yeah, I, I saw people online making predictions about the show that that uh, suggesting Rose Apothecary. I don't know that it is bigger than the town hall. Uh, a very beautiful space, but the town hall seemed right to me. I mean, it seemed very obvious yeah. because people get married in town halls literally every day in real life. That's you know, true. people who don't that do secular marriages and don't do them in a, a church of some sort, really on the nose. Which for this show is almost like a twist because this show so rarely takes the obvious route. Right. So I actually liked it. I thought it made sense. And you know, we've spent a lot of Schitt's Creek. In the town hall. Maybe yeah. not recently, but... No, but between jazz girl practices and town mm-hmm. hall meetings and Moira did their show there when they were doing the, the like, evening with Moira Rose. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we've had a lot of times there. It was a good to, good to revisit. Very good to revisit. Don't get me started on the jazz girls. You're going to make me cry again. Oh, I'm ready to make you cry. Those fucking girls had me tearing up all <laughs> this episode. Uh, but before we get that, we actually have some hijinks. We really get Alexis busting into the scene for the first couple parts of the episode. What did you think of her moment with Moira? Was it a touching moment? I mean, she, we got a boop, and Alexis yeah. only gives the boop to the really people she loves. Ooh. But were you feeling it on Moira's end? What did you think of that conversation? I thought that it actually helped me have a moment of recognizing the situation from both of their points of view. So from Alexis's point of view, she was a very privileged kiddo who had her money taken away for a very short period of time. And in that time, she like found her growth and managed to go to school and find her path. Amazing. I could see why she would have the POV that, you know, this is probably all for the good for her. However, when she's expecting Moira to, you know, be all like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Her story was very different. If you guys remember, Moira grew up very poor. When we learned that about the folding in the enchiladas, that she was saying that she had all these skills that she had learned when she was very poor as a kid. She had actually built her wealth and to have it be taken away, not through a bad choice on your part, but because of an, you know, unscrupulous accountant, you would have, you would be friggin', you know, hissed, I guess is what I want to say. You don't feel like you need to learn any goddamn lessons from that. I mean, you've been, you've been, it's been stolen from you. It actually gave me pause to be like, why would Moira be kind of a little bit blase, you know, like not agreeing at all that this was a good time for them or whatever. And then I was like, oh, because she herself has worked her whole career for that money, whereas Alexis was just handed it. That, I mean, that definitely humanizes Moira more and makes her seem a little bit less selfish, or at least gives her some context for understanding her point of view. Mm. You could get where the anger and the like bitterness of the town comes from if, you know, it was, it, it was your money, like it was your fucking money that you worked every day, you know, practicing your lines and doing everything to to build, I'd be pissed. <laughs> I like that take on Moira. And I, I think it definitely supports the people who feel like she's got a heart of gold, which, you know, yeah. stems from a comment from the retrospective that we'll talk about in a little bit. But my only feeling about that is, though, I feel like Johnny also had every right to be angry. It was, you know, it was... It was his accountant for Rose Video that stole it all from them mm-hmm. that that really brought him low. And I feel like he grew from it. I feel like if he if Alexis had had that conversation with Johnny, the two of them would have been crying and hugging and agreeing with each other. Right. He very much had the same kind of journey that Alexis had. And, and that and that David had. 
<laughs> it, it still frustrates me that Moira didn't come as far as Johnny did on the journey. One, I so agree with you. Rather than being bitter or having that edge that she has about it, he has always had that that real like remorsefulness. Like he hired that accountant, I'm sure. I'm sure he felt like a great deal of responsibility, a lot of disappointment and a lot of guilt about it, which is very different than the bitterness of someone committing a crime against you. Like that's a very different feeling than I think that Johnny felt like had he been paying more attention or were looking at the numbers or whatever, he probably could have even stopped it from happening. So, and we saw that in the pouring out to his kids and the, the constant hustle to make it right. I feel it comes a lot from like, what part could he have been done different? Not that he could have. The other thing though, that in you talking about that made me realize when you said if Alexis had that conversation with Johnny, you know, we didn't get any big heart to hearts with Johnny or with any of them, not Moira and him, not the kids in him. Like he actually had a very small role in this episode. Yeah, he was very much a bystander. I mean, him and Roland were were pretty much bystanders in this episode. But I feel like Johnny, you know, in, in a lot of ways, how episode 13 was the real finale, mm. I think, of the show. Yes. I feel like Johnny final issues, Johnny's story really wrapped up over the course earlier in the season. That's true. Because you really had him confronting his his maybe absolute low in the guilt that you're talking about. And, and it's a great point because think back to the episode about the food tasting and where, where yes. he's starting to realize he doesn't know how he's going to be able to pay for the bill. And David, it takes a little David a while to figure out, but then he originally he kind of cops to what his father's panic is about. And he tells Stevie that story that kind of just trails off about having the wedding fund for Bally, I think it was, you know, and he had put aside all this money for David to get married and it was all gone. And and it really, there are a couple times across the series where Johnny's guilt as a father that he used to be, the the inability to pay for things for his children have really come to the forefront and really forms a large part of his psyche and I think is really a big motivator. His feeling like he's the only one not doing anything, that's the thing he's suffering with at the beginning of the season, that Moira maybe is having her career get back on track with the Crows movie and Alexis is finding herself and David's got the Rose Apothecary and Patrick. You know, Johnny, even really at the start of the season, was feeling lost yes. and guilt yes. and not pulling his weight. And, you know, I'm a dad. And anytime I can't do for my son, I feel tremendous guilt, whether it's warranted or not. I feel like a, a, a weight of failure around my neck about not being able to provide what I think I should be able to provide. So I, I really identify a lot with Johnny throughout the series, but I feel like they wrapped that story. They really brought him low and then brought him high previously. Yes. So we didn't need to really spend a lot of time with him. That's very fair. And in a lot of ways, this entire sixth season was a, a series of collecting the loose ends. And really, this finale was like putting a bow on the bouquet of flowers. But like, really, we've been collecting it all along the whole way. Right. There was no big breakthrough for anyone here. Everyone's journeys were have have they've all reached their finality by the time this episode starts. Yeah. Now it was just the celebration. It was it was the it was the delicious dessert mm. on a hard fought and emotional season. You know, I read somewhere someone talking about how this season was just so heavy, less about the laughs and more about the feels and the emotions. And I and I think that's fair, but I, I also don't think that's a knock against the show. This is not a sitcom. This is, I, I think, a really classic dramedy. Can I tell you why, though, on that front? It's because at the beginning, we didn't know the characters the way we did. So they, this is the way we do now. And so I feel like yeah, it came off more, for lack of a better word, shallow or easy laughs, right? But because 
Alexis and David specifically, they didn't have a lot of depth. There wasn't a lot to them. And as they've grown so far, once you get to this season, wouldn't it have been cheap as hell to just have them do like surface one-liners? Like they, like you Davids every five minutes? Like that would have seemed so like, what? That's not the way she is anymore. Like she's grown past that. Let's see something more from her. And people would have been so pissed. So I don't know. I, I think it was well-earned to have made the turn to turn the corner. And it's our feelings. They didn't make us have those feelings. We feel that way about these characters because we love them, right? So right. so they didn't give us the feels. We we felt the feels. I, I have to, and I, I've really, there are a couple of times I've wanted to already since we've been talking, <laughs> but I have to delve into the retrospective okay. because there's something so on point that uh, Dan Levy talks about, uh, and he is talking about working with his father, and they were talking about the casting process at the start of the discussion about casting. And he talks about how Eugene hammered home the, the need to to make an emotional investment in the characters and how they spent weeks and weeks and weeks working on backstories for these characters. And and Dan turned to his father. He says, and he, he says in an interview he, during the retro, he says, you know, can't we be done? Can't we move on? And Eugene, who's made a career, his best work were all of these real character-driven movies, the Christopher Guest movies. The, people love them so much because the characters, you buy into them immediately. Dan says that his father told him, we can't move on until we know exactly who these people are. Because you need people to care about them. You need people to be emotionally invested in him. And what, that's exactly what you're saying. We care about these journeys. We we felt all of the feels this season, not just the laughs, but the sadness. Think of Alexis and Ted's breakup. And, and all the uh, Stevie and her journey and her trying to find herself and then finding herself. Johnny not being able to afford the the plates at his son's wedding. All of these moments weren't laugh riots, but they're memories I'm going to take from the show and hold dearly because I care about these characters. The show made me feel something about them. And you can't put a price on that. Absolutely. And I think that for people who started from the beginning and worked through this, I mean, this was six years for most of us. I feel like, you know, and it won't be for the bingers, but for, for us that had to wait for each season, I think it's like any story. If you started at the beginning... And then you and then you kind of like held that against them at the end where you're like, uh, why do I really, really, you know, care about these people at the very end of this story? Like pick anything, Harry Potter, whatever. Why am I so invested? Why does this feel so much heavier at the end? Because you're in it. You're in it with them. You're in it with the characters. You're not in it with them in chapter one. You know, you're just learning them like it's going to feel lighter. It's not going to feel like it affects you as much. But by six years hanging out with these same characters. Yeah, we're we're going to be all in. Friends is probably my favorite comedy of all time. Just because of how much I've seen it, age I was during its run, it's it's just very much linked with me. But emotionally invested wise, I never really gave a shit. Like I always wanted Ross and Rachel to be together, but beyond that, I just enjoyed every episode because it made me laugh. And there were some really standout episodes that were not terribly funny. Um, a lot of their bottle episodes, emotional and impactful. But I don't think of Friends as uh, as a dramedy that made me feel a, a roller coaster of emotions. I don't give a shit what happened. After they left the apartment and turned their keys in, I don't give a fuck. I care very much what's going to happen to all of the roses. That's what's going to happen so to Patrick. Interesting. So do you do you feel like it's because the writing was so much more clever or that you feel like you actually saw such growth out of these characters? Like, what do you attribute that to? I think a show that is so well-written and gives a character arc that, that has character development is 
a show that is going to emotionally invest you. When, when you watch a show and every week the character resets, everything that they may have learned last week is out the window for the next week. That's a classic sitcom. The characters don't grow. They, you just, you, you, you take them through the ringer of the 23 minutes and then the next week they reset because it's all about how many jokes can you fit into that theme for that week. Um, it's not a sitcom. It's a serialized comedy. It's, it's a single camera show. There's not a laugh track. There's not a studio audience. It's designed to take you along on a journey. You can pop into Schitt's Creek and watch an episode and find it funny. But there's a lot of Schitt's Creek that if you didn't know what happened the last couple of weeks, you wouldn't understand. For sure. Or you couldn't appreciate it, you know? Yes. You wouldn't get the full benefit of it without doing that. Those are, for me, those are the best shows. I like serialized shows. I like shows that reward me when I watch week after week. It, it's a really special kind of comedy that does that. You get that a lot on the best dramas and the best, you know, serialized. Like, I like sci-fi shows because sci-fi shows tend to be serialized like that. Uh, really great dramas. Lost. Lost very hard to pop into if you weren't watching what happened to Lost. But if you did, you were rewarded. Same with Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek rewarded the viewer if you paid attention every week. If you If you gave the time to the show... The show gave back to you. And that's the kind of thing that is very hard to duplicate. And I think that's what people are thinking of when they talk about their love for Schitt's Creek. Absolutely. The love that the show gave back to them as a viewer. Absolutely. They're like comfort food for me. I love them. There was a really weird part, just because we were talking about Johnny and and he really was a set piece. So this is probably the only thing I really have to say about him. There was a, a scene where he is in a town hall with Roland. Mm -hmm. And Roland is telling Johnny to put on a hard hat. Because he, soon he won't be there. And then Johnny's misunderstanding. He's like, no, you know, we're going to come back here. You know, my son's still living here with his business and his husband. And he's like, no, no, you're not going to live here. Chris Elliott, as Roland shit, is like stuffing a sandwich in his face as he's putting the hard hat on. Yeah. And Eugene Levy, I, I, this had to be a break because Johnny kind of like laughs. But not in a way like he was humoring him. Like he was he starts laughing as if what what Roland said was very funny <laughs> and it's a total character break. I'm convinced of it. It was, it was Chris Elliott making Eugene Levy laugh in the moment uh -huh. and they totally left it in. Go, go watch it. It's I know exactly so, so the scene you're talking about and, and, and you're right. And I also, okay. So if you remember the, this entire season has been a lot of rewards for people who have watched all five seasons before the episode that 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 reminded me of when Johnny and Moira go to Bob's brother's funeral and at the reception in the background, Johnny's eating a sandwich and he looks the same way, like he's like shoving the sandwich in his mouth. And at the time they asked Moira to sing Danny Boy again. And so she starts singing it. Now, what is extra funny about that is that there's an outtake scene of that one. And they they have her keep singing. She's singing in this really dramatic way. And and everyone breaks. Like Eugene breaks, like laughing because he's eating that sandwich and he's just doing this like straight face, like really slow chewing. And <laughs> she like, she she finally goes, how long are you guys going to make me sing this? Because like she expected them to cut, but they just keep going. It's a really funny scene. And he starts laughing and everything. To me, it was that that callback for me, but I understood completely the awkwardness of Roland generally and and Eugene having that like legit moment with him. It wasn't like a laugh out loud line, and I don't think it was meant to be. Not at all. He's but so it seemed it seemed like it seemed they, maybe they even took a couple takes of it and they couldn't get through it with a straight face, so they just decided to leave in. But it's a little bit awkward the way Johnny acts because he's trying not to laugh. 
he's trying to be like put off that Roland's telling him he's going to die, right. but he can't help but laugh. It's just so <laughs> awkward. There's an episode of Friends where Ross has tried to teach himself the bagpipes to honor Chandler's Scottish heritage. It's the end of the episode, and he comes and he starts playing a bagpipe version of Celebrate, screeching in the bagpipes, and Phoebe gets really into it. And she's like, sing along! And she starts screeching like, and she's singing back to the bagpipes. Uh, Jennifer Aniston is, is sitting behind her, is sitting next to her on the couch, but the way the camera is, she's kind of behind her. She puts her hands to her face and is shaking with uncontrollable laughter. And a bunch of them are, you can tell, like a bunch of them have their faces covered. And it, it is one of the happiest moments of television I've ever experienced because it was just, just pure joy caught on camera. And I love those moments. I love them. <laughs> we are at the wedding. We're doing good. We're 44 minutes in. We are at the wedding. I think we are doing excellent. In a 24-minute episode, we have only taken 45 minutes to get to the pinnacle. We're doing okay. We're doing a great. Uh, first, let's talk about the Jazz Gals. They did two covers. They did James Morrison's Precious Love before as like their intro song, which is gorgeous. And I love their rendition of it. And then to walk for, for Alexis to walk David down the aisle, they did Tina Turner's The Best, which obviously is an important song to David and Patrick. And I thought was fantastic as their wedding song. Were, were you surprised that they used it or was, you know, or did they go with something more traditional or what were you expecting uh, the Tina Turner tune? I love both of these choices. Um, Precious Love, like, it instantly put me back to the scene from season two's finale. Um, it was the anniversary one where they're all dancing together. It just reminded me of that. I felt like always, like, if there had to have been a finale that wasn't this finale, that that ending, that time made me feel like, you know, if this whole show ends right here, right now with them all dancing and looking at each other and smiling I I would love this and this would be okay. Um, and so that one hit me like real hard when they started singing. I was like, oh. And then, of course, I mean, how could we not have simply the best being played, you know, with Patrick and, and all those good memories? I think they did great. The, the music choices were fantastic. Alexis's dress. How could, uh, Caroline, how could David not know what she was wearing? Uh, I mean, David, yeah. David was actually, was, he was pretty hands-off, actually, as it turns out, about the wedding planning. Actually, more much more so than I, I think either of us would have guessed. But how could he not know what Alexis was going to wear to the no, wedding? No, you're so dead on. The only thing I could think of is that David has moved over to Patrick's apartment, and he has been going through quite a bit. You know, everything going on, I guess, because, like, say she would have purchased that at the beginning of the season, and then we had to deal with the whole Ted breakup. Maybe there was just so much stuff going on that when it arrived or when it actually happened, maybe there just wasn't a lot of fanfare about it. You know, it just sort of like went in the closet or whatever. But I am with you. Like for as meticulous as I consider his taste and his style, if you recall, I told you one of the things I was really looking forward to was seeing some of the choices that he made. Now, one of the things that he did express, though I don't know that I really felt like I saw it, was that the theme of the wedding was black and white. So he said that out loud. So, okay, so then we can only assume whatever their outdoor space like would have had more themey looking stuff. But since it was thrown together, we're not going to have that. But other than that, like, I mean, damn, I was really, really looking forward to what a David Rose wedding looked like. And uh, that dress cracked me up. There, uh -huh. There's definitely, most definitely a thing about wearing anything that even looks near white. I had like this ivory color eyelet dress that I was going to wear to a wedding 
just because I loved it when it looked with my, I had like these cowgirl boots and the whole thing of the wedding was you're supposed to wear like sort of more like country western kind of thing. So I like put it on and the second I put it on, I was like, oh shit, I'm wearing like something that looks way too white. Like I cannot wear this. And I was like, should I, could I dye this dress? Like I had like a lot of thinking about it. Never would wear it. Never, ever, ever. So the whole, the fact that she actually doesn't want to admit that it's a wedding dress. My favorite part was when he says, did it come with a veil? And she's like, it came with a tool headdress. That is what I like busted. I was like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I did the same thing. I did the <laughs> like really like I thought the whole gag was really funny when she said that the way she tried to explain it away also made me laugh out loud. I really, really loved it. And then the constant like David, like whenever she was like, and he was like, he's like, Stevie, is this a wedding dress? And like they were doing the toast. And he was like, it's a one dress. She's like, David, like, don't. <laughs> like, all those moments. Love it, love it, love it. Their brother and sisterness is just so real and so believable. And there was a lot of those moments. Uh, now, Mike, only because today. you and I have been doing Making the Cut together and we've been like really giving our opinions about fashion, I need your opinion on Alexis's dress because it had a lot of elements going on there. And I would love to hear your take on it. I, I thought it was very pretty. I thought it was actually very flattering for her body type and her frame. I, I think the plunging neckline for her really worked. And I liked how it kind of wrapped out to the gold belt that she added to it, which she was not wearing in the scene where David first sees it. But it is there when she's about to walk him down the aisle. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was beautiful. I thought you'd be all over that backlist business. I wasn't really focused on that, I guess. I think I, I think in my head, I'm fo- I'm thinking more about where we're facing them. The, the pre-walking down the aisle mm, talk. That was so wonderful. It was so wonderful. And then when she says, I love you, and then he grunts at her. <laughs> oh, so good. Because he like couldn't. He was like, don't. That was the like, don't, don't. Make me start crying. What did you think about, like, was it realistic for them to have that, like, I'm always proud of you and her her having the, like, actual self-awareness of being like, fuck, I think I am wearing a wedding dress. I, I've been, I've just been acting ignorant this whole time and I think I'm actually ruining your wedding and I'm so, so sorry. What did you think about, like, what a moment between the two of them? Not out of left field, though. I mean, think back to the escape room. I mean, that that was some real talk breakthrough for those two. But they've had real talk you know, moments with each other, really real moments, a lot, you know, through the season. You know, talk about when David tells her about waiting up every night, you know, waiting for a call when she's off on one of her trips and and how he needed a selfish. And, you know, there have been a lot of times where they have, they've said it plain and and just been honest with each other. I, I think these two, maybe prior to Patrick, at least anyway, these two probably have been the most honest with anyone as they have been with each other. Yeah, Alexis knew, obviously. (laughs) Well, but I don't, I think she was like hiding her head in the sand. And that was like the cool thing is that like, I don't think she was trying to bullshit him. I think that she legit was like, no, it's just a pretty dress that happens to be white. Up until that last second. That I bought at David's bridal. Right. Up until that last second where she, but the old Alexis would never have had that moment. And the fact that she did and felt bad about it. (gasps) Oh my God! Uh, I mean, you know? listen. I, I think if there is a award, an award for most improved human being, <laughs> I think it has to go to Alexis because of the rapid and deep and significant growth she has had this season. She she's been on a very slow journey. I think far behind her father and brother, well ahead of her mother, as, as far as changed by this experience. But this season really like puts some yeast. In the, in the concoction and really, really blew it up fast. And I feel like she has grown leaps and bounds in empathy, in being aware of others. 
so because of that, this felt like an earned moment. It did. I loved you know? it. It was almost important for her to say before they walked down the aisle. Like she like 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 in a church she had to go to penance. You know, she had to <laughs> she had to give confession before she would walk him down the aisle. Which Jazzagal song did you like better? Did you like their Precious Love, which I feel like we heard a lot more of than the best? Um, because they're talking in the antechamber. Uh, bef- while uh, the best begins, and then while they're walking down the aisle, there's the Johnny Roland. If you listen to our opening theme that we started this episode with, you'll hear. You know, they talk over it for a second, also. So I think we got more of Precious Love unadulterated. Mm-hmm. But which version did you? Which song did you like the Jazz Gals performing better? I liked, or I was most struck by the Precious Love one because it happened like out of nowhere. Like they started standing up and lining on the sides, and I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. I knew they would sing, but I didn't know exactly how it was going to go. And when they just started, I mean, my heart was like, oh, and the way that it blankets the mm-hmm. whole family and feels just like the whole the whole town and the and the whole family feels like that. That song is for them. It was wonderful that they did simply the best for him walking down the aisle. But I felt like Precious Love was like for all the rest of us. I agree. I mean, just the way they were lined up on the sides. Yes. You're absolutely right. It was a, a surround sound of love yes. in a lot of ways. And their, I mean, their tone, obviously they didn't, that, that was not them live singing that recording right. that we heard, right. which I mean, they probably sang it live, but what the version we heard was a dubbed over version. I hope they release it. I would totally pay money to have that track. I thought it was beautiful. Aww. There were a couple of moments really starting from this point on where I, I got involuntary goosebumps. I didn't bawl at any point in this episode, but I teared. There were tears running down my cheeks a couple of times throughout this episode. And this really started it off. It was just the significance of the moment because... We love these guys so much because they've gone on such a journey, because the town has rallied around these kook balls <laughs> so much right? and really have you know, a, a town of weird people have have taken these weird people and made them their own. All of that really just kind of hit me in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. The other moment that I think was like really a lot was Stevie and Johnny walking down the aisle. And I'm that just immediately made me shoot to like all our moments with Stevie throughout this entire series. And she mm-hmm. played such a cool role this whole episode of just being like the little like side, side note mm-hmm. comments. You know, I mean, the moments when she's trying to say something and David's all like, courts adjourned, Marsha Clark, like all that stuff. Yeah. Like, all their little like snippy kind of back and forth. Oh my God, she just played it so well. And just seeing them walk down the aisle together and having that little hug moment, everything. I was like, Stevie, we're going to miss you. I, I know I've said a lot on this podcast. Um, I love the Stevie-Johnny relationship. It's one of my favorite relationships in the show. Much like how Johnny, res- his story was resolved last week, Stevie's story was really resolved last week. Yeah, you know, last week was really the finale in so many ways. The final question of, you know, to David on the roof of the car of why am I not enough? Like, why is this town not enough for you that you have to go to New York? The the real bearing of your soul of a best friend that you feel like is trying to leave you actively and you don't understand why. The resolution and success of the motel chain, you know, branching out. So much of, of Stevie's story was wrapped up in parallel to Johnny and to David at different points. I thought it was great to see them together. So she didn't need to have an active role. She could be just like the side barb woman this episode. It was just perfect. They were just perfect. Was perfect. She was, she, there was like just the right amount of her, like giving her two cents, being a little sass master, just the whole thing. I just, she was just spot on. And then of course, Mike, how could we neglect the moment of opening those back doors and seeing our officiant? <laughs> 
Marriage. Marriage is the reason we are here today. I oh my busted God. my ass laughing so hard. The way her hand, her, um, her palms are turned up. And she comes down with the with the big mitre like hat kind of thing, the cardinal hat. Holy shit! So like, oh the my like god, way that like like the bottom, like the oh my god, I can't even say it. Like the 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 part of the hat that meets her hair has like a hair like around mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. so it looks all like flipped up. Oh my god, the whole thing. Whoever created that hat wig, <laughs> kudos to you. Did you not get an immediate Princess Bride vibe from that? Absolutely, yes. It was oh so my god. funny. I- I started quoting the the movie as soon as I saw her, and I could not stop. Like, just yeah, the hair, like the like the specially made wig yes. that just go with that hair. Oh my god! But the way the gold gloved hands were just turned up, so like the way the Pope would really walk down like an aisle at like you know St. Peter's Basilica, <laughs> right? like she's giving some sort of blessing so like on her way down. Oh yeah, my like god! Like she's gonna she's gonna go give like a like a like a talk from the from the Pope's apartment, you know, to the masses in St. Peter's Square. Oh, so funny. Besides the outfit, because the outfit was classic. What, give me some of your favorite moments of Moira as officiant. Oh, my goodness. I feel like just the fact that she had been so positive that she was going to be able to just be this, like, completely unemotional, just, like, do the job that needs to get done kind of thing. And then she's up there and she's just, like, blubbering. And not unlike, again, that funeral scene where Johnny kind of goes off on a tangent about this town and how they're all just going to die there. She kind of goes off on, like, this, we're all stuck in this godforsaken town and David has to be like, that's enough, we got it. Like, it was the same repeated kind of feeling of that and it, oh god it just made me laugh so hard oh my god when he tells her now you're just babbling it's so funny <laughs> there were a couple things i mean i love that she forgot patrick's last name i love that she worked in baby crows oh my god yes very on brand for her but my favorite thing was after patrick's vows she she kind of like verbally like diarrhea's david's name she goes something like i'm gonna butcher it she goes something like david and it was, it was, it was like so much emotion behind it. Like she couldn't, she couldn't just say his name. Like now it's your turn, David. It was like, Dah! it was, it was so good. And it was really just so pinpoint. Yes, it was. This is the Moira as a mom that you wish you always got. Yes. You know, the, the real vulnerable. Oh my God. So funny. She did an amazing job. Are you ready to get into our vows? We are, because I think you and I may be on the same page here. Now, Noah, the actor who plays Patrick, is a singer and has, you know, a great voice and and has, you know, used his chops here to romance David previous. How did you feel about the fact that he used this song as his vows, especially given the fact that in an earlier episode, he was sitting and writing what appeared to be lengthy vows. I did not like it. It was probably my least favorite part of the episode. I get, obviously, David being a big Mariah fan and Dan Levy in real life being a big Mariah fan. You know, the always be my baby lyrics. I get why that's cute. But we just finished hearing having the Jazz of Gals sing the best. I feel like we did a good ode to the music of your life that that is like hallmark moments Mm -hmm. i didn't need him to sing his vows and he's got a beautiful voice and i love that noah reed is trying to make a musical career based on the piggyback of the show and i'm all for that and i and i want to go see him at concert and i want to give him all my money but yes we saw him writing vows he was the one working on the vows that we've seen this season so so all he ended up doing was i mean he literally only said like one line that wasn't seeing the Mm -hmm. lyrics so I was like, what are you just sitting over there been writing this whole time? 
like, right. This, this is this is what he says. He says, David, I can't believe this is happening. So I'll keep this very short because I think you know that I would climb a thousand mountains for you. You are a part of me. So the climb a thousand mountains for you. That was what apparently he was trying to get out all those the times that we saw him writing his vows and working on them. Because then he goes into the Mariah Carey song. I did not like it. And I, you know, can I tell you why? And it's such a silly thing that I probably don't that I because I think it's beneath the show. There, do you remember the do you remember the sitcom Yes Dear? All right, there was a sitcom Yes. This couple, they're not like super rich, but they're well off. The wife has a sister, and the sister and her husband fall on hard times. And so they move into the like guest house or like the pool house of of the sister of of the of the well-off couple and they move their kids in there. And and basically it's a it's like a family sitcom kind of thing where these in he's like a beer swilling, you know, eat sandwich big guy. The sister's husband, the well-off husband, he's like a very buttoned up businessman who always wants to talk about Wall Street and, you know, and it's like a real like culture clash. You, you know, very derivative funny enough but never broke the bank there was an episode where the fallen on hard times couple it's their anniversary and they have promised each other that they will write something sweet to each other for their anniversary and in the end each of their cards they both to the other person end up quoting heavily from bon jovi's living on a prayer (laughs) i'm pretty sure it is they pick the same Bon Jovi song and they quote heavily from oh, it gosh. to each other as like their poetry. And all I could think of when he starts singing this Mariah Carey song was that show and that episode. And I was so, I'm not going to say disappointed because that is very precious. That would be very precious of me to say that I was disappointed at any part of the show. I just thought it was cheesy, unnecessarily yes. so. We had just had the music cue. I fully believe Dan and the writers could have come up with something better building on the mountains for you kind of I stuff. agree because one of the biggest parts of Patrick is that he is such a level-headed partner for David. And David, I actually relate to in a lot of ways in terms of like, not in like sort of the selfishness portion of it all, but of those times of being like overwhelmed by things that are happening or whatever and having to like take a moment and have a partner and like understood where I was coming from, that they didn't say like, oh God, just calm down. Or like, you don't, you need to not act like that. But instead just like dole out the information to me little by little, give me a chance to like get adjusted. And then, you know, let's move forward from there. That I'm so, so, so wowed by their relationship that I wanted to hear Patrick's like, you know, pair of pennies for all of the relationships out there in the world. I wanted him to say things that felt heartfelt and real. You know, so I just felt like I was like, man, right. you just copped out. I didn't get to hear, I didn't get to hear those vows. So here's the thing. And, and and it's interesting that you say that because I think at the end, I think David is the one who gave the vows that hit exactly upon what you're talking about. I think David's vows addressed why you make so much sense for me as a partner. And it, and he was saying the words and I, as close as I got to losing an episode was listening to David's words because they really resonated for me. They're, they're exactly what you want to find in a person Mm -hmm. a person that will take care of you the same way look at the lyrics for precious love you know just the opening lines of precious love exactly what you're looking for in a partner who just completes you and makes you whole and takes good care of you loves you unconditionally even when you're completely fucked and that's what david is saying to patrick there that for all the couples in the world that being said there were so many things he could have called back to Mm -hmm. just talking about i would have i would have loved you know when when you came in to incorporate your business and, you know, I gave you my phone number and like just hit on stuff, like give us some fan service, you yes. know, just, you know, something like that would have been great because 
I think David's vows were the best vows in Uncle Riot. He went second. I, I think they were exactly what the show needed and really hit all the right notes. But I feel I was underwhelmed by Patrick's vows. Comparatively. Agree. I super love David's. They were so good. I feel like people around the world forever will probably find this episode and write them down and try to use them <laughs> for their own vows right. because they are just that good and they are just that raw and and real. And I just I thought that they were just wonderful. And that's when I looked at Patrick and was like, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you over there? Just singing some song lyrics. If you are interested, you could go to IMDb's quote page for this episode and they actually have written down David's uh, vows. And I was going to read them. And then I've decided not to read them because one, I'm not sure what would happen to myself. Oh my goodness. Would you cry? I, I don't know that I would be able to deliver them without emotion. Now I kind of want you to. No, I think David (laughs) delivers them best. And actually, we have them. So we're going to listen to them right now. David. Uh, Yes. Uh, Patrick. I've never liked to smile as much as I like yours. I've never felt as safe as I do when I'm with you. I've never known love like I have when we're together. It's not been an easy road for me, but knowing that you will always be there for me at the end of it makes everything okay. Patrick Brewer, you are my happy ending. And of course he ends with you are my happy ending, which gives such a good payoff to that joke. All you people clutching your pearls from the beginning of the episode. Jesus Christ, calm the fuck down. That's a great payoff to a joke. Oh my God. You are my happy yes. ending. Of course he is. Yes. Of course yes. he is. Agreed. 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 Here's the other controversial part of the episode that, again, I don't think holds water as an argument, but I know people are upset about it, so I wanted to ask you about it. Were you disappointed that we did not get to see the Rose Brewer reception? Yes. You were. Very Tell much me why. so. Because of everything that I already told you about, how I was very excited to see what a David Rose party looked like. Like he had, there had been so many little moments of being like, you know, that the the roses just could just like throw these like amazing parties. I mean, the kids really, um, or that they just had these amazing times around the world or whatever. I just wanted to see a David Rose party. I wanted to see how cool. I wanted to see them all dancing again. I wanted to see just all the moments. I I love when they dance together and they've shown it on previous episodes of them all dancing. I just thought that it would make good sense. Okay. Here's my counterpoint to you. I don't think anyone would ever not want to see them in a party setting or dancing together. But I also feel like we have had several parties together. I feel like we had had several outings together. I feel like we had the anniversary episode that it remains my favorite episode of Shit's Creek, not in small part because of the final scene where the whole cast comes together and they are all dancing together in this joyful moment that would have worked great as a series finale had that happened. We've seen that before. So I didn't need to see that again. Other than just the fact that make the episode an hour, which is another big complaint. Make it give me an hour episode. Uh, you know, the show <laughs> went nice to 20. Uh, <laughs> nice noise. The show went to. The show went to just under 25 minutes, was which is almost four minutes longer than any other episode. So I, I thank them for that. But I feel like we saw that. And I feel like the only real part of the wedding planning we saw at all this season was related to the food and to the reception. So I think we already understood all of the aesthetic 
the the whole idea the whole see the whole episode about the food tasting and i didn't think we need to see that here and i think looking back on it i think dan gave us that episode because he knew the reception was going to be cut out of here so we've already covered the food and the aesthetic of that we've already seen them dancing and being joyful together time management wise i would have rather seen the vows and i would have rather seen the morning after and you know what we got in this episode caroline the vows (laughs) And the morning after. Okay, so Mike, I do have to say that I would not have wanted to trade the reception for the morning after stuff because my most favorite part, really, of most things in life, a couple hours after, when everything's pretty much kind of cleaned up and you've had an amazing event, whatever it is, I still have some like bobby pins in my hair, but it's like a little half down and I still have makeup on and, you know, I still have my dress on, but I have like socks and like a sweater thrown over the top and all kinds of stuff like There's something about that time that is like very magical because you're still in the moment, but all the pressure's off. You're still happy and elated. Everything is just feeling so good, but it's all behind you. You don't have to worry about anything going wrong anymore. You don't have to worry about just anything at all. It's all finished and you're still living in it. And I just, oh, I just love that time the best. So uh, you you were real, you like a real Alexis vibe where she's still wearing her dress, but she also had the sweater kind of yep. over it. And I'm not, like the, the part where I'm holding my heels and walking down in, in pantyhose is about my most favorite feeling ever. Yeah, I think I'm more of like a Patrick guy. You know, I'm still in the, I'm still in the tux, but like the tie is undone. But I still like, you know, the way suspenders feel when they're Dude, up and not guys down. with their ties undone. F. That's amazing. That's like. Again, it's like my most favorite part. It's like I've seen the person all night with their tie up and then like that part where it's like undone and a little tousled and everything like, oh, yeah. I wear a really, uh, really tight Windsor knot born of four years of Catholic high school where I had to wear a knotted tie every day. I am a proficient master at a tight, tight Windsor knot and it looks fucking good. There is nothing better to me, even now as an adult male after coming home from like a business dinner where I've been wearing a suit, that first tug I give on the tie to loosen it, uh, one of the greatest feelings there is. There's nothing better than tugging down that tie and feeling it loosen around your It neck, is so. rivaled by carrying your heels and wearing nylons and feeling the hotel carpet under your feet as you're like playing around and doing something silly, totally post-event. That rivals that moment. It is, it is the absolute relief, the exhale of it all. This may surprise you. I have not spent a lot of time in or out of heels, nor in nylons, uh, on hotel carpets, motel carpets, or oh, any I other Oh, I call kind bullshit. I bet you have. Well, I mean, besides right now while we're recording, <laughs> but that's just because I'm going out oh afterwards. Oh my God. And you just got but, home from going out. That's the time. I want to hear about how, how much excitement there is at that point. It's such a good feeling. It feels... I'll call you from Jake's apartment oh, in the morning. I'll let you know. Whiskey, Whiskey on your breath. Whiskey on your breath. <laughs> so what hit you the hardest here? Was it the four kids lined up with the parents? Was it Roland's goodbye parting gift? Give me the highs and the lows of of the Rose goodbye. Okay, super highs were the fact that I pretty much knew that these were some real hugs, authentic hugs. So Stevie, mm-hmm. or I'm going to say Emily, hugging Eugene, that felt so good. You know, the the handshake to Patrick welcoming him in the family, that kind of stuff felt great. Really, honestly, seeing Johnny and Moira go off together for as much as the show is 100 percent 
you know, about their family. There's not that many times when we get scenes when you have him like opening the door for her and, and getting into the car and all that stuff that's very, I can't really describe it, but you just feel like they're, they're locked in together and they're going to be okay. And there's something about that togetherness that felt so hopeful. We just hadn't had that. There was a lot of like Johnny working away from Moira, Moira mm-hmm. working away from Johnny. Everyone's hustling, but them just like gelling and getting in that car together and rolling down the window is like, oh, it's just all perfect. Also, what a nice bookend to the first episode of the season, The Creek, where they go off together to go like lay eyes on the titular creek of Schitt's right. Creek by themselves. And this was such a nice little bookend because even within the course of the season, how far they have come as a couple, as a family, individually, how reversed their fortunes are from 14 weeks prior um, is pretty dynamic. And so it's a really interesting bookend watching them. I found it jarring when Johnny says, driver, we're right. Just hearing Johnny Rose say driver, Mm -hmm. so odd, but you know, muscle memory for Johnny, but odd for us as viewers hearing him being able to sit in the back seat of a really nice big SUV luggage blocking out the sun behind them because it's filled so high almost jarring seeing the roses almost back to the top of their game again did that strike you at all very much but it it struck me for a little bit of a different reason when he said driver we're ready my heart was like am I, am I re- like am I ready for them to go am I ready for them right. to drive away from the creek my heart was like okay with it because of the four standing there with their arms around each other I felt like okay this is a different generation of like stuff that's going to be going on and I guess I could be okay with that but it it was you're you're 100 right you know there's this there's this idea in storytelling the hero's journey the idea that a, re- a recurring theme in all of literature throughout time or in western literature anyway is the idea of a hero being called to a, a journey refusing it accepting the call going through the trials of it emerging back again into the real world change for the better with with a new knowledge or newfound powers that they didn't have before that whole scene in the car really reminded me especially johnny i'm really talking about johnny here the idea that johnny rose is going to be a better man in this next maybe his 3.0 life than he had ever been in his prior life that the humility that he has learned and earned the idea of really treasuring it all and what really matters has changed him for the good and will make him a better person now that he's reemerged into his world off to conquer the world again as a businessman back at the top of his game but with the lessons learned in the creek having having changed him i, I may be looking at it really deeply but it really struck me in that moment what what a full circle and i think that's why i also felt okay because of just exactly what you're saying like I didn't feel like they were leaving. I felt like Johnny had learned how much he cared about being a good father to the kids and how much you knew he would be checking in on the kids. He would be a part of their lives from afar. He would obviously be like with Stevie doing business stuff, all that kind of stuff. So it didn't, it felt like, yes, location wise, they're going to be in a different place, but heart wise, they have learned the lessons that are going to make them be a loving family forever. And so it's it's okay that they're physically leaving. Well, what was your low moment? So I saw a lot of highlights. Was Did you have like a meh moment or did everything feel good to you? Especially, you know, like looking back and, and looking at the sign. What did you think about the change? I love that. I thought it was so, I thought it was so, so sweet. I thought it was so, so funny and such a nice in-joke. 
in-joke for them and for no one else coming to see Schitt's Creek for the first time. Probably not even really for the people who live in Schitt's Creek who shall maybe notice it what the time to time that they leave the town and see it. But for us as viewers and knowing what that sign meant early on in the show, I thought it was ultimate fan service. So I thought it was really funny and cute. The goodbyes didn't hit me until I had watched the episode again. I didn't get worked up the first time I saw the goodbyes and the hugs until I had seen the farewell episode, you know, uh, warmest regards, and then watched it again, knowing how real that was, because that was the series rap announced for Annie and for and for Dan and probably for Noah and for Emily also. And getting on film, what happened after they finished filming that scene, but the cameras were still rolling, so we got to see the hugs, Eugene hugging the kids goodbye, Catherine hugging the kids goodbye, Emily running off to, she can't handle the emotion of it going off to the side. Watching that and then rewatching the episode now a couple of times, that whole thing really triggers for me in a big way. In the same way David's vows did and, and Jessica's precious love did, that ending now does for me too. Like total goosebumps immediately, a little feeling of adrenaline, Right. Yeah. The the authenticity, right? Like the sincerity and all mm-hmm. those hugs is like, oh, yeah. oh my God. It was so loaded in yes. such a sincere way. Yes, it was so good. And I, I love the last song that they played. I love the This Will Be Our Year by the Zombies. Like, I love that song. And when they started playing it, right, as like they're leaving the, the creek and you see the, the big welcome sign and everything, it's like, Oh, my heart. <laughs> and it was great leading up to that. They played a like a I'm going to say jazzed up, but it's not a jazz version. But they played a variation on the Schitt's Creek theme leading into the zombie song. And if you didn't notice it, go back and listen to it. it was a, lot, a lot of fun. I really liked the music in the episode. Yeah, I, I really had no low moments from this episode other than maybe Patrick's uh, <laughs> vows. Right. Uh, do, do you want to go through the retrospective? Does it does it pay for us to just kind of hit some high notes if if anything stood out for us? Let's just do high notes. Let's do that. Okay. And I'm going to throw a little bit of controversy before we get into the, all the warm and fuzzy okay. stuff. They went through Annie Murphy talked about her casting. Dustin Milligan, who played Ted, went through his. Emily Hampshire, Rizwan Manji, Ray, Sarah Levy, Jennifer Robertson, Karen Robinson, Noah Reed, all talked about their casting. Catherine talked about hers, but that was actually... Dan, Eugene, and Catherine all talking about how they got her to do the show. So a lot of the core cast, we did not see any Tim Rosin, Rosen Rosen, who played Mutt. He didn't appear, other than in a couple of archival footage scenes from episodes, didn't appear at all in the special. I thought that was weird. Chris Elliott, they never talked about casting Chris Elliott, and he's probably the biggest name after Catherine and Eugene coming into this show. They didn't talk about his casting at all, which I thought was weird. Even to say, we always knew we needed Chris Elliott to play a role in shit. And we only saw him once in like one quick talking head interview, which I think was about Catherine and Eugene being a, a dynamic duo. They never cut to him again. And again, not to start, you know, internet rumors or shade, but I'm curious if Tim feels maybe unceremoniously removed from the show or if, or if there's something there, you know, for the same reason you mentioned, we couldn't go back to Mutt's barn because he had, Mutt had been gone from the show really without reason for so long and never came back. Did, did that even strike you? Were it, was it, they were invisible? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who's picking up on it. Maybe I am starting internet rumors. I really thought that Mutt played a really important role for Alexis. I mean, he was that sounding board for her when they were first in the creek and sort of like getting her a lot of the things that had happened to her out in the air. She, she, he was like her scene partner for so long. And 
in addition to, of course, being like a major love interest. So I did think it was weird to just act like that wasn't a thing. I know he's on another show. And so I guess maybe scheduling wise, it wasn't possible, but it felt weird. And not having Chris Elliott, you were the one that pointed out to me the fact that he is so so uncomfortable about doing interviews and stuff. So the only thing I could think was that perhaps he's okay about being in front of the camera when he's playing an, an actual role, but, but he just, that just isn't him. And maybe because they are such a family, maybe Dan was willing to respect that and just let him not be a part of it. And maybe he really didn't want the behind the scenes of how his, his role was cast and stuff like that. Maybe it was an actual respect my privacy. That's my work, you know, enjoy my work on screen, but no one really needs to know the the ins and outs, the nuts and bolts. Dan and Eugene do such a good job promoting the show and themselves uh, and what Shit's Creek is about. I don't know that you need Chris Elliott's input there. I just thought it was weird, but less so him and more so like the Tim not appearing in any form. We see it was November 2018. They're having a season six brainstorming session. They began the final table read for the final episode in May 2019. This is April 7th when we were watching, April 7th, 2020, when we we're watching this final show, this final episode, and they shot the entire final season in just 52 days. Crazy how far how far and long ago they yeah, did this. Yeah, good call. This was in the can for a wow. year. That's that shocking. That is shocking. Yeah, I was I was really <laughs> blown away. We are equally shocked. I, I thought the 52 shocking. days was actually really that surprising. Shocking. Your average drama records an episode in eight days. They shot 14 episodes in 52 days. Now, quick math-wise, that's less than seven dramatic episodes of television being shot and they filmed 14 episodes granted the episodes are only 21 to 24 minutes long but how fast they cranked out the actual production of the show is insane that that is a credit to them as a as a group of actors and their crew and their production staff and everything because clearly they're very efficient they must be extremely well prepared they must just be like just incredibly well-oiled machine by season six, you know, and it shows in being able to produce great, great television in such a short period of time. I mean, extra kudos. TV shows are famous for having a lot of rewrites. You know, you hear about your initial, your initial draft script and then the blue script and then the pink script, the white script, the yellow script, you know, representing, you know, versions of the script as it gets redone. Something tells me a Schitt's Creek script comes out pretty final. Dan as being the, the papa bear in the writer's room and, and just the staff that I'm sure he employs and, and his father employ on the show. Once the script is done, it probably doesn't change very much, which saves you a lot of I time about that. in, in production. Because I feel like you have said something um, in one of the episodes about the idea that was there any improvisation? Like, was there any parts where anyone was riffing? But I can remember us having a conversation about that. And really, when we were watching the show, I feel like they had one of those after shows and they said, not really. There's really not improvisation. Yeah. Though a lot of scenes may feel like they were improvised because they flow so naturally, the takeaway was there is actually very little improvisation. So it's really all there on the paper, as they say. There were a couple of good stories that came out of the casting. There were a couple of nice uh, nice things said about Canadians. Not that I am Canadian. Emily Hampshire and such an, an awkward social situations woman as she seems to be in real life. She told her, her U.S. agent she no longer wanted to go in for auditions. She would put it on tape. But she she just couldn't deal with it anymore, and the New York and the U.S. agent dumped her. But her Canadian agent kept her, told her to go audition for this show, Shit's Creek. And Emily had just had enough and said, "No, no, no." And the agent says to her, "Go in. They're Canadian. They're nice." Aww. I 
love that. <laughs> that made me smile so, so big that that's how the agent pitched the show to work. They're Canadian. How bad can they be? You know, they're going to be Every nice Canadian you. that I have had in my life has been amazing. I love Canadians. I, who doesn't, really? And their denim fashion is fantastic. My other favorite Canadian takeaway was Dustin Milligan talking about how he came upon the role. It turns out through the Canadian circles in Los Angeles. And I love the idea that there are like speakeasies for Canadians hanging out and gathering in dark places in Didn't LA. Didn't they establish that in How I Met Your Mother? Like she would go to like a Canadian bar to watch hockey, Robin Wood, and they would go yes. in and it was like totally like a secret, but it was like a secret Canadian hangout. Yeah. And, and that Dustin knew Dan. Dustin thought he was being offered a role. And then Dan was like, no, 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 I'm inviting you to come audition for this role of Ted, which was just kind of funny <laughs> and awkward. Because then later on, he's talking about a line. It was about the the wine and the labels line. Dustin mentions, obviously, he's not in that scene. That's, that's Stevie and David in that scene. He talks about in his interview, when he read it, he texted, he texted Dan, how much he fucking loved the line about the description of, you know, being to the wine and not the labels. And I just like the idea that these guys were friends before the show, which is not something you can maybe pick up on. Does anyone from the show strike you as being Dan Levy's Catherine O'Hara? You know, Eugene talks about the fact in this special that Catherine is always his first choice for casting. Always. And, and obviously here, you know, they called her in to do the pilot pitch and promised her it wouldn't turn into a series that she had to do. And then they got picked up and they went back to her and said, would you mind doing the series? Eugene and Catherine O'Hara are inseparable in some ways if he's not acting with Queen Latifah. Does anyone from the show, Emily or Annie or or his sister Sarah, does anyone from the show strike you as a potential Catherine O'Hara for, for Dan? I feel like of anyone who I felt like had the great chemistry on screen, I would give it to Emily. I really feel like that the two of them had banter in a way that I could see them moving into different storylines and being able to, to retain that banter, even being different characters and having that as having such great chemistry. Those are the two. I kind of feel like for me at this point, Annie is too much like his sister in that like I just don't see myself being able to like let that go. But for some reason, the, the idea of Emily feels more chameleon-like, like they could do more there. What do you think? I think Emily is the most natural person to play. I think they have a really easy chemistry. Because think back to before where they became besties when they were maybe love interests. I was happy with them being together. I like them together. I love them as best right. friends. Their personalities were so well aligned. The dark humor and sarcastic first chemistry that they had together totally worked I feel like though them laying on the hood of the car and them talking, to me, that... That image is so much more powerful to my heart than them laying in that heart-shaped bed in the motel. So for me, I'm like, mm -hmm. that's where their true chemistry lies. You know, but I'm going to back it up and I'm going to also say, I think that Dan and Eugene have to work together in the future because there's just, there's just something so incredible about the two of them together that I love. And whether it's just the creative side or, I mean, but I would love it to be in front of the camera. I really want to see them back again. Yes, I hope so too. And, you know, you have to think that they overall enjoyed this working relationship together. It, it was so successful that I hope that they enjoyed it. Oh, gosh. It that, I felt like the retrospective, I just felt like Eugene was just like the gushiest. Both of them, really. All of them. Sarah, too, yeah. about just what a rare gift they had been given to, to have this time together. And, you know, the one I probably felt the worst about or for was Sarah because she was just very certain that kind of like this was like her one and only shot to ever work with her family. And 
I felt like mm-hmm. really kind of sad about that. Like, it's like, no, you guys can make something else. Like, come on, you. Like, she felt the most legitimately like it's over. Like, this was a big thing and it's over. And everyone else I had a more hopeful kind of vibe from. I, I agree with you. I think that was definitely the vibe she was giving off. But, you know, you think about, I'm, I'm sure she wanted to enjoy working with her family. But, you know, I wonder if at some point it was, we need this person to play Twyla, which interesting, very different. Very nerdy, Twyla. There's a little scene of her in her costume from the pilot pitch. And it's Sarah playing Twyla, but not a Twyla that we recognize in any way, shape, or form. I was really, really surprised at how much that character underwent from the show being pitched to what we saw Well, and additionally, the fact that Chris Elliott's daughter had been originally cast for that part, Abby Elliott, and that it was really only because of like contract stuff that Sarah ended up playing it. And so for her, she does have to look at it like it was like a miracle. It just landed in her lap. Uh, were you surprised at how not done up Annie Murphy was for her audition? Not that she looked bad. I actually thought she looked really good, but she had virtually no makeup on. Her hair was in a messy bun. And that's how she went into her audition for this role. I was a little surprised. I was a little shocked because <laughs> she, I mean, she was definitely going in to play Alexis Rose and not like a Stevie and not like a, a Twyla who maybe it's a little more excusable to be dressed down and not made She up. seems like a really down-to-earth person. And so while I agree with you wholeheartedly that it seems like as an actress who really wanted to get the job, you might try to lean into your character more. But at the same time, I feel like it was her just being like down to earth and being like, just this is who I am, that that's actually Alexis's vibe more. Like just, this is it, like unapologetic. And so maybe that was actually more on point. I feel like I've really never heard her voice, her speaking voice outside of the series. Not not in a, a large way. I feel like we got to hear her a lot in this retrospective. She has a much deeper voice than her Alexis voice. Mm. Not like, not like, like a man, but like a husky voice, like, like a, like a kind of like sexy, like, you know, lower voice. Like, I don't know. I found it very soothing, but it was very different than the inflection I'm used to. We got a chance to hear her so much more because she had those clips of like the radio interviews and stuff like that, that I felt like she was using Mm -hmm. again, like you're saying, like much more her, I don't know, radio voice or whatever, rather than playing a character too. Yeah. Even sitting in the chair though, I just, it was a much more relaxed kind of. Annie, then, you know, she wasn't turned up to 11 like Alexis is so often turned up to 11. I thought one of the really genuinely exciting parts of the um, retrospective was when they played the after show that Noah presents a letter to Dan that had come from a an LGBTQ mom support group and that they were just commending the show and all the fantastic writing and how it had changed their children's lives and changed the way that many of them even related to their kids. That is so amazingly impactful. And to see like Sarah and Dan at different points, like the the, the crying, the everything of just how much everyone was affected by it all. I just was like, blown away, blown away by the whole thing. For sure. And, you know, I feel like the retrospective spent a lot of time on the LGBTQ impact of the show from the gay icon status of Moira. And, you know, they took us through like the night of a thousand Moiras at the the bar. I think it was in Washington, D.C., the cast at the uh, the Pride Parade. This talked about the impact of the show and the way it depicted David and David and Patrick's relationship, which became over the, you know, didn't start out that way. After Patrick was introduced and they put them together, the show very much became about 
the normalcy of their relationship. Johnny Weir had a great quote. He, he talks about how the show didn't question the gayness and the queerness, and it didn't make a big deal of the gayness and the queerness. That's what made it so impactful. It showed a queer relationship just the way that heterosexuals have a relationship, where, where talking about your sexuality is not the lead of the conversation. It's just people living. Emily then lumped onto that, that idea. She had a great, uh, she had a great talking point where she said, it never occurred to her before doing Schitt's Creek that the best way to teach acceptance in a TV show was to not talk about acceptance. That you were able to show people the normalcy of it by just showing the normalcy of it, not by making it an after school special. You and I have talked a lot about this. This wasn't a good gay relationship or a good queer relationship or a good pansexual relationship. This was just a good, well-written, well-acted relationship. Yeah, like hashtag goals relationship. Yeah, there, there's no aspect of Patrick and David that is not applicable to anyone trying to have a good relationship yeah. out there. It transcends your orientation. It's just about two people being good to mm -hmm. each other. And at the end of the day, I think that's the genius of Schitt's Creek. We've talked about so much just in this podcast where Schitt's Creek is so idyllic because there isn't hatred about who you are. People don't dislike people in Schitt's Creek because of who they are at their core. They dislike people because of actions they take. That's the guidepost for all of us. Accept people for who they are and then judge whether you like them or not based on their actions, not based on who they are at their core. <laughs> You're like, I'm feeling it. No, I agree with you so much. And there there were so many moments in so many relationships. I mean, God, you could take people we didn't even talk about, Jocelyn and, and Roland. I don't love the two of them um, in terms of like they, they, they have a cringe factor in a lot of ways. However, talk about a relationship that just accepts one another for who they are. I mean, you get the Jocelyn, oh, Roly, you know, all the time. And they're just mm -hmm. for the awkwardness, for the clumsiness, uh, sassy ways of wanting to be like dressed like, you know, um, Devil Wears Prada. This is what people are doing in real life. They are making role play games. They are doing massage trains like shit is going on in the world. And you don't have to you don't have to attach a grade or a rating to it at the end of the day. Just enjoy it. This is what's happening. If you think back on the show, I think the most cringeworthy thing that ever happened to the shits as a judgment upon them was when Johnny went to Roland to ask for poor people clothes, essentially, oh, yeah. uh, to go bargain. That was super cringy and a judgment on them. But uh, but at that point, you know, Johnny didn't mean it that way. It was just that he only had suits, you know. But uh, I, but again, that wasn't about like their sexual side, which people get so hung up yeah. on. But I, I, that's really the only cringy. Th I mean cringy thing that I feel like the shits were ever kind of judged on and, and that they took offense to. I'm glad you brought up Jennifer Robinson or Jocelyn. I, one, I don't like her new haircut. I miss her Jocelyn hair. Oh. Uh, she had one of my favorite casting stories. I don't know if you remember this. The day before her audition, she had submitted a application to work at Petco, but was hopeful that she wouldn't have to take that job because it required maybe her having to use a forklift. <laughs> And she did not think that she would be well-equipped to using a forklift. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the day before becoming Jocelyn shit, you're, you're applying at Peck. That is so crazy. That's the life of an actor, ladies right? and gentlemen. That just That's is crazy. so crazy. I just, it, it is, it's so wild. And I'm so happy that the, that the creators, and I'm sure this was all budding from Dan, I have to think that, that they had the foresight to, to actually 
record the making of season six and and bothered to capture mm-hmm. all of these stories because this is the type of stuff that usually is a very much an afterthought and it's all like oh well we'll go dig up some footage or some candid photographs or something that someone randomly took but the purposefulness of actually making this a story and letting us go along with them and then giving that over to us as like their true final finale i mean they are one of the best show franchises that care legitimately care that the audience feels satisfied and feels content without being like schmoozy about it like they're not like they're not doing something that makes you feel like oh god you know it's just them and they're just trying to buy our love and affection it's not like that it's like trying to sincerely say you guys deserve to know all the behind the scenes stuff you're curious about it and we're happy to show it to you here's the stuff same like their live shows they're one of the very few shows that i've ever heard of touring around and giving the audience an opportunity to meet them and hear them live and be a part of the story they just i feel like from beginning to end understood what an experience is that includes the fans and, and and makes us all feel like we were all a part of this the whole time. The live shows is a great point because it's happening now. A lot of times these shows, especially these fan-heavy, nostalgic shows, they'll get back together again, but they're going to do it at a con or they're going to do it at ATX and it's going to be 10 years on. Now, they, they you know, Dan, Eugene, and the cast, they all they had the idea and the foresight to to do that now, to bring that to their right. fans now, to, to make it interactive with them now. Which right, is so, not so a smart. reunion, not a reunion, but like a right. we're in the middle of still making this show and you can actively be a part of it. Ugh. There was a lot of time spent in the retrospective talking about Catherine's and her wardrobe. Dan says that it was the most important element in storytelling outside of the writing. He says it's the wardrobe because we reflect so much of who we are in what we where and I was curious if that gelled for you as a statement you agreed with. Not that wardrobe is, is important tonight, because I think you would say yes, but that it's the most important thing outside of the writing as far as it comes to storytelling. Do you agree with that statement that wardrobe plays that role? I think that it is rare that wardrobe and I'll say hair and makeup as well get the credit that they deserve when it comes to creating a character and creating a really believable, in-depth story for that character. I think that there's so many moments, especially, I mean, having to do with how much they went into finding vintage clothing, finding authentic, real clothing, not like just trying to do like a um, like a knockoff or something, but really finding true designer clothes. That's the kind of stuff and attention to detail that's going back to your Eugene comment of like, we can't move on until we really know these characters. And if you're not going to show them like they would really be, then don't bother. Like, don't even bother with this. They did the work and it shows. I mean, my God, when we went up to Sharon Springs and I was wearing the outfit that I was wearing, we had people come up and be like, I know you're dressed as Moira, like because it's that realistic and like you can just spot that. And it's not right. like I was wearing a quote unquote costume. Those were all clothing items I owned. But when I put them together, it was like, that's what Moira looks like. Of- yeah. Right. It was. Her yeah. Aesthetic, and so sure. having that feel is like, to me, I think it makes a big deal. And I can tell you this very, very, very clearly when they don't get it right. When the hair or the makeup or the clothing just doesn't match, that is the only thing I can see as a viewer. I I don't care what you're even saying. 
you just you stand out like a sore thumb and i i really can't stand those things watching dan and dan being there for all so many of Catherine's fittings or at least when they were filming anyway but you get the impression that he's a real helicopter parent with the show down to the point that you know he's writing he's directing he is starring in but also he's at all of these costume fittings that's how something like moira's aesthetic where people can point you out in the street and say you're moira rose or dress like moira rose that's not by accident. That's because him and Catherine and the costume designers are are putting that work into that. It's not something that's happening by accident. And so on a show like Schitt's Creek, for a character like Moira, 100% agree with, it's, it's indelibly linked with who she is. I thought it was super cute when he was talking about finding them a queen dress for 300 bucks. And he, and he looks at the camera and he goes, this would retail for a lot, lot more. And he was so proud of like the steel that he found kind of thing. You know, this was a Canadian show um, it aired in America on pop TV. It, it probably had a very restrictive budget. And, and they talk a bit about without knowing numbers, they had to do all of these outlandish wardrobe things and the wig things. The tux he wears, it, uh, it was like a real designer's clothing. And there were there were critics during this retrospective talking about how I could tell that that wasn't a knockoff of a dress because I own yeah. the dress, you know, that appreciating the uh, the authentic fashion of it all. It's not something that pops for me or plays into it. I think you're right. I'd probably notice it if it was like a shit show, but not something I'm very much aware of. But it made me appreciate it more watching these behind the scenes and them talk about it with the passion. I agree. It's did. one of those times when it's like, you know, they do it on other shows where they bother to go back and show you the special effects. This show doesn't have special effects like this. The special parts are the wigs that Moira uses, the the wardrobe, the authentic, you know, vintage pieces that they found. All those little things, that is the special of the special effects. And so when they bother to show you how they did it and and the way they did it. It's it is gives me the zing that it does maybe other people when you see the the green screen effects or the computer animation that they did behind the scenes. Seeing how they cultivated the wardrobe and watching the fittings and stuff like that gives me the same like electric buzz. I appreciated the final goodbye scene, the morning after scene more after watching this retrospective and then watching the episode again. It it mattered more to me because I saw what happened behind the scenes during the filming of it, and there were a couple other things they showed the behind the scenes of that made it even more impactful for me when I think about the episodes. One of them was the final table read and the way Dan could not get through his vows at the table read with, uh, he, he couldn't finish them. He was, he began crying so hard. And this is the guy who wrote the words and then could not speak them aloud at the table read. Can you imagine how hard it must've been to film those vows on the day of in costume in front of his mother Ooh. as the officiant in front of Noah Reed. I mean, it made me tingle watching the table read and watching them all cry hysterically. Watch Emily reaching for tissues as the person narrating the direction on the side talks about Johnny and Moira riding off into the sunset. And that's the end of the series. All of those things, just the things that they showed from the top final table read were so meaningful. And I'm so happy that they showed us because it's the fans that it matters to, to see these kinds of things. So I'm just glad that they did show them. 
to us, that they did capture them on film and shared them with us. They didn't have to. They could have kept that secret for themselves, just for themselves, but they didn't. They gave the, the, those kinds of gifts to us. And I really I, I just it. think that they, they just thought about us the whole time. And, and just the idea that they had it ready to go for us at the end when we would be most sad and most just like distraught. The idea of actually getting that extra time with them and the real time, the behind the scenes time. What a gift. You know, they just they just have been so generous with the fandom. I'm uber proud of them. And it also gives me such hope, Mike, moving forward. We've always ended these with predictions. I feel like moving forward, I can absolutely see a movie. I would be super happy if like Netflix were to do some like, you know, uh, a four part one hour each, um, you know, give us a, a details of where everybody's at and what everyone's doing now. I would be thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. What do you feel like is for them? You're not rushing me yet because there's still a couple things I want to talk to you about. And I know no, you're you go ahead. Up, no, this is more. the I, I would absolutely not rush you in the finale. We have waited long enough. Did you catch how many drafts of the Ted and Alexis breakup scene in the cafe? Uh, how many drafts they went through before they got the right one? I, and we were just talking <laughs> about how this show probably doesn't go through a lot of rewrites. This one particular scene proved very difficult. To I them did not get an actual number, but it does not surprise me that it required a lot of TLC to get right. Seven drafts of wow. that breakup scene. Just watching Annie Murphy talk about how it was really emotional and they cut to Sarah, who was in the beginning of that scene, but then was off to the side. And I think she had put on a, some kind of uh, like zip up hoodie just watching them film it. And she is just in hysterics, just crying so hard watching Annie and Dustin just act their asses off and saying goodbye to this great relationship we had on the show. It was Annie talking about walking off the set into Eugene's waiting arms. And all he says to her is Annie and they, and she breaks down. She had kept it together on the set until he enveloped her in a big old Eugene hug. And I got to think right? he gets great I want hugs. a Eugene hug. I think he smells amazing. He smells like a really nice, non-offensive aftershave. But I think he really, for a guy who's not terribly big, something tells me he holds you really, really tight in a good way. She gave a great quote that I think we all get behind. She goes, a sad Eugene Levy is a heartbreaker. You know, for a guy who really has his reputation for being maybe a little manic, maybe a little OCD with details, I think that's definitely a part of him as much as it probably is a part of his son. Someone who's probably always pretty upbeat on set, always looking to give a good rah-rah speech and a, we did a great job here kind of speech. The idea of him being sad must just be a mood killer for everyone else. Yeah, I think he's got that Papa Bear vibe that if Papa Bear sad, everybody's mm -hmm. a little sad. <laughs> I feel like when people ask all the time, like what celebrity would you want to have a dinner with or spend like a weekend with or something? And for me, Eugene Levy completely makes the list. And bigger than that, like I want to think, I know they don't, but I want to think like Dan and Sarah and everyone like lives at the house. Well, I'm sure they have their own homes. We know they do. But I would like to think they would all be at the Levy compound and I would have like a weekend with them. and I would have so much fun and I would be laughing my ass off like 24 seven. I, I would love that so much. I would love to go talk to Eugene. Something tells me he very much throws an awesome barbecue. He, I would love to pick his brain and just talk with him. I think he's probably really interesting. I would love to get drunk and joke with Dan and Sarah. I think that would be just a fucking blast. Agreed. They would be so much fun. We talked about how we thought it was a little weird some of the guest stars that they had on the retrospective. Carol Burnett. All right. She's a, she's she's of a time with Eugene and, and Catherine. I, I guess, guess that makes sense. But Will Arnett. I, I love Will Arnett, but I didn't understand I why didn't he like was there. I didn't like that at all. 
and and Cameron Crowe, which is fucking weird. I mean, the guy who brought us Terminator, Titanic, and Jerry Maguire. That guy, being a Schitt's Creek fan, just blows my mind. But they cut to him a bunch. But he gave a quote about the show that I think is so important to one of the keys that people love about it that maybe they can't explain why. And it, and it really encapsulated a great thing that I love about the show. So I'm going to read you his quote. Every line is classic, but they take the time to give you the moments between the lines too. And that's good. Cameron Crowe. And that is so mm. true. This show never rushes the beats. The dialogue is so good, but the show always lets it breathe. They always let you live in the visual moment of it. I 100% agree. You know, we saw so many of those moments in this finale, like, you know, them taking the moment behind the scenes before David and Alexis are going to walk down the aisle and just letting them look at each other, letting them have a, a look at each other or or a, or a little mm, or a little things that are just reactive because that's real life. I mean, we're not constantly spewing paragraphs of words at each other. A lot of our language is body language and or just being quiet for a minute when someone has said something, processing what they said, that's real. And and I think that writers often think that that might be boring or audiences would would feel like, oh, come on, just like get on with it. But to me, it allows all of us to like process what's being said and just enjoy it. I very much think that the writing deserves a lot of applause for that. I 100% agree with you. So much of what makes this show stand out the show never feels like it needs to cram a joke in every 30 seconds or 90 seconds. It could just sit there, which I think is a very real thing. Someone will say something and you just sit there and think about it for a second, either because it's crazy or because it's thoughtful or because you just don't know how the fuck to respond. You just kind of let it breathe there a second or, or you give a facial response. Schitt's Creek did that with a masterful touch that is seldom. And you got to give a lot of credit to, you know, Dan, Catherine, Eugene and Alexis for having some of the most kick ass facial expressions. Dan, especially. I mean, I put Dan in a class unto himself. The amount of of little gifts and memes and stuff that I use of him just making a face. Oh, my God. Perfection. Think about the most popular gifts of the show. And this show probably has the most gifts of any show out there. Maybe the most gifable show ever. Think about how many of them are just facial reactions or body movements or just very quick lines like the you, David's or, you know, eat glass or lick rust, like very short lines or just no lines at all. And it's just a, it's just a, a Dan Levy look or eye pop, or or neck twitch. It's, um, I just saw someone posting that this was their favorite one, and it's the one of Alexis where she's flipping her hair back and forth and making, like, a weird thing with, like, her tongue. Like, it's a very, like, like I did so good kind of thing, and, and I, I'm doing it here <laughs> with, you know, pretend hair. They just all excel at that. It's just- Like, here's one of those, like, wacky-ass facts that you're like, but it, but wait, how could that be true? Alexis only says you, David, three times, three mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm. And then think about how much that like, I I mean, we all act like it's like the thing, the line of the show. And it's like, oh, my gosh, it only was three times. People treat it like it's a, then I oh, do God. that. It's not. Oh, it's not. It's It's just so fucking memorable because it was delivered so, so iconically. Nice. There is one final quote. 
I replayed a bunch. It's towards the very end of the episode, and I'm going to read it to you now. It's Dan Levy. He goes, it's like a family, so it's hard to say goodbye. Oh, that's why this was so hard for us to do this finale show. I, I When I was watching it again recently to take the notes for this, because I knew the time was coming, we couldn't run from it anymore. <laughs> I just sat there, paused, staring at the screen and the closed captioning. And I said, that's exactly oh how God. I feel. It's like a family. So it's yeah. hard to say goodbye. I, I don't know how to say it any better Oh, my than God. That, I feel that way. And I feel that way about all of all of our Shit's Creek fans and all of the people out there. Like, I just, they're all so funny and so, you know, big hearted and just, just wonderful people that I hate that there's this feeling of like a disbanding of it that I'm like, no, I just... Maybe if we just never do the finale podcast, then we just never have to let it go. <laughs> I've been feeling a lot like that. I don't know that I'm ready to say goodbye. And then I had kind of an epiphany, Caroline. We don't we have don't? to say goodbye. No, we don't. Because Pod Clubhouse is pretty new. We we only started this endeavor. I mean, you've had uh, Daily Review and I've had Pop Culture Review for a long time separately. But the joint venture, the podcast network of Pod Clubhouse <laughs> is new which allowed us to only start doing the Shit's Creek podcast at the beginning of season six. What does it mean? It means that there's five seasons of Shit's Creek out there that you and I have never <gasps> talked so about. That's so true. We didn't even know each other. No, we didn't know each other. Most uh, I mean, it. through most of the Shit's Creek run, let alone really talk about it. I mean, I think you and I, just in conversation, maybe know some of the highs no, and lows I don't even of some feel Shit's that way. Moment. But like <laughs> moment, weekend, weekend, it's like, I don't even know I don't know even your name. know Who are you. you? <laughs> What am oh I doing God. here? What are you getting at, Mike? What are you like reading my diary? What did, I'm not ready to say what, what is, Where are you going to say that? Are you going to Are you going to fund your own Shit's Creek movie? What are you going to do? I, I don't want to say goodbye to Shit's Creek. I think I think we should start over at season one and continue doing without a paddle <gasps> Shit's Creek podcast. What <gasps> I said it. Uh, I said it. <laughs> you do want to do that? I do want to do that. Do you want to continue doing without a paddle the Shit's Creek podcast and we start over at episode one, season one, and we do this wow. whole fucking show? I, wow. Okay. Yeah. I think that that would be amazing. I would love it. I think it would be amazing too. <laughs> I think it would be amazing I would love too. that. It would be so fun. I want to go back. I know that we've seen the series before, but I, at the same time, I feel like, you know, this would be a fun time to to bring in some other fans and you know, get a chance to add some trivia and, you know, use some, you know, of our future knowledge to talk about different things that maybe have pop up. And maybe we'll actually see some things where they laid the groundwork for different moments that we know are coming. So we'd have like a very different reaction to it all. For sure. I think there's gonna, definitely going to be episodes that I like more or like less because of what eventually happens down the road. There's probably also an evolution of the comedy and the writing and just the character development of the show, especially early on. That's going to be really interesting to us to be like, oh, yeah, this person was still really stuck up or this person was really not palatable at this point in the series. It's going to be interesting. And I've never talked critically about the early seasons of Shit's Creek really with anyone. I mean, I, I found the show. I, you actually, I, when I first met you, you used to talk about the show called Shit's Creek and I didn't know what it was. So you would every now and then just talk in Shit's Creek gifts <laughs> for the entire that day. That was a goal of mine at different points where I was like, I'm going to yeah. challenge myself. You would say, today I will only speak and respond to people in Shit's, in Shit's Creek gifts. <laughs> I don't know what that is. And so I was a late adopter of Shit's Creek. I think I began watching in season three, Whoa. the end of season three. And then I had to kind of go back and, and kind of catch up. Well, so I think I'm going to get a lot out of going back with it. And I've had so much fun doing the show with you and listening to our fans and interacting with people who are listening to us talk about Shit's Creek. And thank you yeah. guys for listening to us. 
this was one of the foundational shows that Pod Club has started and really took off. It was and, and remains one of our most listened to podcasts. I, 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 well, I won't speak on Caroline's behalf, but I'm gonna speak on my own behalf. It means a lot to me uh, knowing that you guys listen and when you send us messages or you reach out and you know I hated that part or I love that part or <laughs> you're stupid. You know I love it all. Oh my god. You can speak on my behalf. Of course, I'm I'm very happy that we have fans that are listening and that we have cool people along the way that we've met, like Kendall at McGillicuddy's, you know, Naturals. She's the coolest. You know, like we've met so many cool people along the way just because of Shit's Creek. And I feel like the journey is not over. I want to go to a live show or some sort of Shit's Creek. Mm-hmm. I know they do shit con. I know they do all kinds of stuff. I really, really, really want to go to these things. Fucking Big Rona has like kind of wrecked a lot of this stuff, but I really want to hope for the future that we're going to, even if I have to wear a cool U David mask, I still want to go. I mean, fingers crossed, a lot of the live shows for 2020 have been postponed. But as far as I know, I don't think they have canceled any of them outright. I think they have pretty much successfully just rescheduled them and postponed them to the fall. So fingers crossed that this madness flattens out and life can return to some kind of normal where we can gather again in spaces. And definitely going to see a live show is on both of our bucket lists. Shitcon would be amazing. I hope they can bring Shitcon mm, to Sharon Springs. So what a great melding of a town that embodies that spirit of Shit's Creek. I think it would just be a natural fit there. So there's a lot of Shit's Creek left to live. And I, I agree with you. I think we're going to get some kind of movie or some kind of follow-up with them. And until then, come and enjoy the creek with us, starting back at episode one. I think we're going to have a really, really good time. I think it's going to be a good time. I think we'll probably take a couple weeks off, you know, recharge our batteries, dry the tears a little bit, and then return to the creek. And for five seasons worth of Without a Paddle, the Shit's Creek podcast. Love it. This is Caroline. This is Mike. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.